you for joining us today here at Victory. At Victory Church, we are a community of authentic, spirit-led Christ followers transformed to walk in victory. Join us as we begin today's message. If you don't know um, the backstory to that song, It Is Well With My Soul, man, I, I encourage you to go home and, and look that up. That is, that is such a, a powerful, powerful song in so many ways, and especially, we talked about that a little bit last week, actually, ironically, um, just those cave of life experiences through the pain and suffering that people go through, and, and the man that wrote that, wrote that um, through tremendous pain and suffering in his life, and saying, it is well with my soul, God. Um, it's amazing, so go look that up if you don't know it. Um, yeah. uh, for anybody in here that, that maybe we haven't had the opportunity to really connect, I think I know most of you, we've had that opportunity, but if there's anybody in here today that, that we haven't had the opportunity to connect, I, I want you to know, first of all, I would love to be able to connect with you, love to get to know you and your story and vice versa, um, so if we haven't, please uh, come and hit me up after church, uh, let's get together, let's set up a time to go eat, grab some coffee, whatever, if we already have, let's do it again, I'd love to, and uh, so I want you to know that, um, I love you. I'm so glad that you're here. A little bit about me. Again, people that maybe don't know as much. Um, uh, my name is David. I have the incredible opportunity of being one of the pastors here at Victory Church. Um, we have been here for my wife and I, my family and I have been here for almost two years. Um, actually, next month will be, will be two years, the end of next month, which is hard to believe. Um, I, my little bit more about me, my beautiful wife, Brittany. Her name is, uh, her name is Brittany. My beautiful wife, Brittany. That would make sense, right? Yeah. <laughs> Spoiler alert, yeah, yeah, she is uh, my best friend, my confidant, I love her so much, and uh, I've got two incredible kids, my daughter Darcy, she's seven years old, she's my little princess, and also she is wild and all over the place too, I love it, kind of that tom girl princess, um, and then my son Liam, um, he is wild and all over the place, I love him to death, he's the sweetest kid ever, I call him little man, has any, quick question, has anybody ever seen that show, it's like a kid's show, uh, called Wild Thornberries? Anybody ever heard of that show before? Raise your hand. Okay, you know Donnie on that show? That's my son. They, they modeled that I'm, I'm confident. I, I need to look into that because, you know, we should probably, you know, get something from that because that's, that's my son, Liam, okay? Uh, no, but I love him to death. He is wild and all over the place. But that's a little bit about me and my family. Again, I love the opportunity to get to, to, to learn more about you. Um, something else, one, one other thing about me that some of you may know and some of you may not is, I don't know if I've ever said this on the stage really, um, I, I was in the military for four years um, and I was in the Marines, I was an infantryman for four years, went on several different deployments. I've been out for about 11 years now, so that was a different life. Been out almost three times the amount of time that I was in. Um, and I got the opportunity to go on a lot of different deployments. Some places were great, some places were horrible, um, and saw a lot of the world. And one of the places that I'll never forget going was to Africa. Got to go to Africa, specifically to Kenya. And uh, we trained with the Kenyan army for three weeks there. And I'll never forget it. We got there to Kenya, and we just had our packs and a few basic supplies, some training type of stuff. And when we got there, we uh, went out in Humvees to literally the middle of the jungle in Kenya. Like, we didn't stay in barracks or houses or anything like that. It was like under the stars and cami netting, and I loved it. It was awesome. And we got to do a lot of cool things, training and whatnot train a little bit with the Kenyan army who those guys, oh my goodness, they put us to shame. They're, they are awesome. 
Uh, they can survive on almost anything. We complain like when we don't have water. These guys can go forever without water. I don't know how they do it. But so that was really neat. And one of the things that we did, one of the, one of the um, training evolutions that we did was we were sent out in roughly five to six man teams further into the jungle in Kenya. And they took us in these Humvees um, out from the place that we were camped at, you know, caminating and all that, took us further into the jungle, five, six-man teams, no clue where we were at. I mean, this is Kenya, right? We don't know where we're at. Uh, they even give us a, a machete, too, to be able to kind of whack our way literally through the jungle, right, the thick of the jungle. And uh, they, we had a day pack, which is a smaller pack with us, some of the basic supplies we would need, some basic uh, food for the day, water for the day, camelback, had our rifle with, you know, the, the magazines, extra magazines fully loaded just in case, you know, you, you ran into a, a lion that wanted to eat you or something, you know, uh, which we were literally told, don't go anywhere without a loaded rifle and someone else because there are, this is the middle of the jungle in Africa, right? So... We get out there, the only other thing that we have, we all have those items, but the only other thing that we have in each group is a map and a compass. That was it, map and a compass, right? Each group had one. We get out, they take us in the trucks, we go miles and let us out, and they're like, okay, this is your rendezvous point coordinates, uh, we'll meet you there, that's where, that's where we're gonna meet you, and then we'll pick you up, all right? Good, bye. They left us. Like, oh, wow. All right, bye. And, and I remember thinking in that moment, like, and we actually said this out loud as, as they were kind of leaving and like, man, I, I really hope we don't get lost or run out of water or get eaten by lions in the middle of the Kenyan jungle. That would be horrible, right? I remember thinking that. And so long story short, we made it. I'm here today. I'm alive. Thank God. Okay, we made it. It was great. But I say all that to ask you a question. I'll tell you a little bit about myself, but to ask you a question. Out of everything that I listed there that we had with us in the middle of that jungle in Kenya, what was the single most important item that we had to, that, that would help us to get to our rendezvous point? The compass. Yeah, you guys know exactly what it was. It was the compass, right? I mean, because think about it. Somebody might say, well, you need a rifle and, and rounds because of the lines. What happens when you run out of rounds? You need water. Well, what happens when you run out of water or food or all these other things? Well, what about the map? That map is great, but you know how easy it is to start going in circles? If you don't know which direction you're going in, it is so easy. We needed the compass. Without that compass, honestly, we may not have made it, probably wouldn't have made it to a rendezvous point, to a place of safety. So I say all that to say this. What's really cool, what's really interesting is the fact that every single one of us, whether you know it or not, has a compass. Every one of us does. And we, it's with us wherever we go. And the compass that all of us has is more important, several times more important than the compass that I had in Kenya. And we use it every single day, multiple times every single day. That compass in your life, all of our lives, is called your conscience. And your conscience is the moral compass inside of us all. The big idea that we're going to focus in on today is this. We all have a moral compass. Who's in control of yours? We all have a moral compass. Who's in control of yours? Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would, that you would help to reveal the passage that we're going to be diving into today in a fresh new way. Even for those of us who have read this so many times again, I pray that you would help to reveal it in a fresh new way. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would just take over this time. Speak to me, speak to your people. 
I pray that you would lead us to conviction, not, not just to hear a message in one ear and out the other. I pray that this isn't just a check in the box. I pray that you would convict us, that you would draw us closer to you. And if there's anybody here today that doesn't know you, I pray that you would draw them into, an, into a relationship with you, Jesus. Knowing that when we honestly follow you, that you will change every aspect of our life for the better. That you will save our souls, that you will change every aspect of our lives. I pray that you would help us to understand what this is, this conscience that you've given us, this moral compass inside of us all. How important this really is to us, but then really how important it is to you and for our lives. And I pray that you would align, that you would help us to surrender these to you in our lives so that you can align it with yours. Help us to grow in our knowledge and our love for you and help us to want to honestly know what your will is for our lives. I pray all this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. So if you are just now coming, if you have missed the last few weeks or if you're here for the first time, we've been in a series called Heart Transplant. And through this series, we've been diving into the life of King David. And so if you, you're just now joining us, or you've missed a lot of sermons, uh, the good news for you is, for one, you won't be lost, all right? Because even though it's in the middle of a series, it's a standalone sermon. But the other thing is, the other good news, is you can go back, you can listen to all these sermons that you've missed in the past, online or on the app, podcast, all that good stuff. So I highly encourage you to do that. But again, you won't be lost if you're just now tracking with us today. Um, so for those of you that have been with us, you know that where we're at currently in this story with David, because we're kind of going a little bit chronologically here, is David is running for his life. He's literally running for his life. He is being hunted down. Um, like, I mean, as though he is like some kind of a wild rabbit dog or something by Saul, who was the king of the nation of Israel at this point in time. And the reason that Saul wants to kill him and will stop at nothing to kill David is because Saul hates him. He is jealous of him because God has anointed David the next king of Israel. In other words, David is the one who's technically supposed to be on the throne, not Saul. And Saul hates him. He doesn't want to give it up. So he will stop at nothing to have David killed. And so David has, has had to leave everything that he knows, everything that he loves, everything that he's worked for. He's even like newly wed. Um, he's had to leave all of this behind to run for his life. He's been going from cave to cave to cave, hiding for his life. Some other people, we talked about it last week, have joined him. Misfits, outcasts, rejects of society have now joined him. And they're happening from cave to cave, literally hiding for their life from Saul. And so that's where we catch up in this text. This is 1 Samuel Chapter 24, starting with verse 1, says this. When Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the wilderness near En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000, think about that, 3,000 of Israel's fit young men and went to look for David and his men in front of the rocks of the wild goats. When Saul came to the sheep pens along the road, a cave was there, and he went in to relieve himself. David and his men were staying in the recesses of the cave. So they said to him, Look, this is the day the Lord told you about. I will hand your enemy over to you so you can do to him whatever you desire. Then David got up and secretly cut off the corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, afterward, David's conscience bothered him. David's conscience bothered him because he had cut off the corner of Saul's robe. So don't miss the part in this text where it says that David's conscience bothered him. 
Because this is one of the most significant kind of hinge parts of this text right here, the specific situation that David is in. Because what's going on in David's conscience is about to determine the outcome of this story, of his situation. So this is very, very important. And so before we dive too deep into this, though, let's, let's kind of find out why. Like, why is that? And let's just kind of start from square one, right? Like, what is the conscience? What is this thing, conscience? When you think of that word, what do you, what do you think of? And I don't know about you, but a lot of times when I think about the word conscience, my mind starts drifting towards like these, uh, these things that I've watched, especially as a little kid, because, you know, you've been integrated into my life all throughout my life as a little kid. So I think about like, for example, the movie Pinocchio, right? So when you think about the word conscience and you think about the word Pinocchio, who do you automatically start thinking about? What's his name? Jiminy Cricket, right? You start thinking about Jiminy Cricket. Let your conscience be your guide, right? Or, or you start thinking about these shows like the angel and the demon. One angel, you know, angel over here, demon over here, whispering in your ear, telling you what to do, right? And you're, you're like, what in the world am I supposed to do? And so you, I start thinking about things like that, right? I think that's where a lot of our minds start to go because we've been integrated with this stuff since we were little kids. But what I want to encourage you to do is let's kind of put everything that we think we know about the conscience, everything that, you know, Disney, as great as they are about telling us things like this, uh, let's put all of that to the side and let's kind of start from scratch. And let's like have an adult conversation about this. What exactly is the conscience? And so that word conscience, it actually means awareness. Conscience means awareness. And so it's an awareness of your surroundings, what's, what's going on. Specifically, when it comes to the conscience, it's an awareness of what's right and wrong, what's going on around you that is right and wrong and even inside of you. So your conscience, in other words, is your moral awareness. Your conscience is your moral awareness. Another way of saying this is your conscience is the moral compass inside of us all. Your conscience is the moral compass inside of us all. And something else that's important for us to understand when it comes to the conscience is the fact that your conscience is from God. It's from God. If you're asking, like, what is, is this good? Is this bad? What is, it is from God. In fact, if you go all the way back to, if you go in the Bible, right? You got the Bible, you got all these small books in this big book called the Bible. The very first small book in the Bible, it's called, it's not really a small book, but it's in there. It's Genesis, very first book. If you go all the way to the beginning of that book, what's amazing is you can actually see the, what's called the creation account. So if you've ever had questions about like, how is everything here? Like, where did everything come from? You look up at the stars and the sky, you look at the trees, the mountains, and all these other things, and you look at life, and you look in the mirror, and babies being born. How did this all come about? What is sustaining all this? What's so amazing, it actually explains it to you. It will literally show you. So go back and read that if you haven't read it. It's amazing. But one of the most significant things about it, you can see this in the creation account chapter 2, is our creation when God created us, and explains that as well. If you're wondering, how do we get here? It explains it. It's amazing. Go read it. But what's so significant about that, the most significant thing isn't so much the fact that God created us, which don't get me wrong, I am so glad to be alive, man. I am glad to be here. I got breath in my lungs. That's great. But the most significant part about the fact that God created us isn't the fact that he did create us. It's how he created us. It's how he created us. Because how God created us is how? In his image. 
in his image, meaning in his likeness. That doesn't mean that we are God. That means that we are like God. We share in his likeness and his characteristics in certain ways. So you're you're like, David, what do you mean by that? I I mean things like, for example, the ability and the desire to love and to be loved comes from God. We share in the likeness of God in that aspect. Uh, The the ability and the desire to to give joy and to show joy and and comfort and peace and all these other things. And and one of the most amazing parts about it uh, is the fact that we are all created in the image of God. By the way, this transcends uh, no matter where you are from, your background, your faith background, what you have or have not done, uh, you know, uh, male, female, whatever, wherever you're from, it doesn't matter. This isn't just like followers of Jesus. This is everybody. We are all created in the image of God. That's what we believe as Christians. So literally, no matter where you are from, no matter your faith background, any of that, when you are created in the image of God, which we all are, that means that you are created with incredible value and worth. All of us. Isn't that amazing? That's so amazing. We are all created with incredible value and worth. And something else, knowing that we're created in the image of God, that means because we're created in the image of God, that means that we are all moral people. Because you are created, all of us are created in the image of God, that means that we are all moral people. What does that mean? That means that you naturally, inerrantly, from birth, know in ways the difference between right and wrong. All of us do. All of us from birth. Like, you, ever, you ever thought to kind of question that and think about it? Like, why is it that I kind of know a lot of times the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do. And it's just very definitively, I just know. Like, no, that's, that's wrong. What are you doing? That's wrong, right? Even when it goes against the grain of what somebody else thinks. Why is that? Why is it that I could go around this room today and I could you know, ask some questions? Like, for example, is it right or wrong to just murder someone in cold blood for no reason? Is it right or wrong to steal from someone, steal from like a little old lady for no reason? Is it right or wrong to, uh, you, know, uh, uh, you know, spread lies about someone behind their back for no reason? Is that right or wrong? Are those things right or wrong? If I were to go around the room today and ask that question, all of us would probably unanimously say, obviously that's wrong. And probably be like, what are you talking about? Of course that's wrong. Why is that? Why do we automatically know that? And then the flip side of that, if I were to go around the room and ask, well, is it right or wrong to, you know, help someone that's in need? Is it right or wrong to be kind to someone, to say, you know, a nice thing to someone? Is, is that right or wrong? Automatically be like, well, of course it's right. What do you, what? Yes, of course it's right. Why do we know those things? Why do we know? Because there's something inside of us, this kind of moral compass inside of us that is steering us in the direction of good, right, positive things, positive decision-making. And somebody might argue, well, you know, we learn those things from our parents. You know, our parents teach us right or wrong. Or or society teaches us right or wrong. Like that's, and then we grow up with these things. That's how we know these things. But what about the situations where people grow up in a household and their parents don't teach them that? It's actually the complete opposite. They teach them the opposite. They actually teach them to do the wrong things. And society, are you kidding me? Have you turned on the news? And what about people who go against the grain of what they've been taught as kids? what their mom, dad, society, other people have taught them for some kind of a quote-unquote greater good. What is that greater good? And why will people go out of their way to sacrifice of their time, their energy, even of their life, even at times, for their 
enemies, which, by the way, completely defies the laws of nature, which is survival of the fittest. Completely defies it. Why do we do that? Guys, it's because we know there is something inside of us, and I think all of us know this. If we're honest with ourselves, there is something ingrained into the fabric of our being that just tells us, that screams to us, this is right or this is wrong, even when everyone else around us at times is telling us differently. And and what's really amazing about this is Uh, there's a guy named the Apostle Paul, one of the greatest evangelists and theologians that ever lived, that actually wrote about this a couple thousand years ago. Let me read this to you. These are his words. He wrote so many of the different books that we see in the New Testament, right? So many of them. Um, and, And one of the books that he wrote is the book of Romans. And so he says this in chapter two of Romans. He says, indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law So let's kind of break that down. When Gentiles who do not have the law, he's talking specifically, hear me, he's talking specifically about people who are not Jesus followers. People that wouldn't associate themselves as Christian, right? So they're not following Jesus, but they don't have the law. What does that mean? Well, back in that day and age, the Bible didn't even exist. They didn't have the Bible. It didn't appear for a couple of hundred years, two, three hundred years after that, right? When they canonized it. So there is no Bible and they don't have the law. They're Gentiles. The Jews have the law. So they don't even know what the law is. They don't have the Bible. It doesn't exist. They don't know what the law is. They don't follow Jesus. So even when Gentiles, people that do not follow Jesus, that do not know the Bible, that doesn't exist, they don't know the law, have no clue, do by nature things required by the law. In other words, they do what God's word tells us to do, that God's word, the Bible, tells us to do, even though they don't know it. They are a law for themselves, even though, catch this, catch this, even though they do not have the law, they don't have the Bible, they don't know God's word, they don't follow Jesus. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Watch this. Their consciences, their consciences also bearing witness and their thoughts, sometimes accusing them, and at other times, even defending them. Wow. So in other words, Paul is telling us, and we can actually, let me back up, There's, there, we can actually understand sometimes when the Bible says things like, for example, we are without excuse. Paul actually mentions the same guy, the same book, different chapter, chapter 1 of Romans. He mentions the fact that we are without excuse. And so now when we read something like this, we can, we can kind of understand why. He says we're without excuse. Uh, you know, uh, the fact that God exists, the fact that God created everything and that he sustains everything. Because for one of everything around us, we look at the stars, we look at the universe, we look at like, you know, the mountains and, and plants and trees, and then we look at the mirror, and we got a pulse, I've got breath in my lungs. And we look at like kids and babies, and if you have kids, you're looking at them, and you're like, how in the world is this all here? And what is sustaining everything? But not only that, he's also telling us in this text right here, the very next chapter, chapter 2, right here that we're in, we just read it. He's saying there's something inside of 
us all. Even talking about people who do not follow Jesus, who did not know the Bible, did not exist. Still something inside of us that is screaming to us the fact that God exists. That the fact that God has sustained everything and the fact that he does want to be involved in our life. And now when we read things like this, we can start to kind of understand why it says that. Why Paul says this. And so thinking about the conscience, the moral compass inside of us all. And as we think about this, there's something inside of us. And again, I think we all know this. There's something inside of us that is steering us in a good, positive uh, direction. And most importantly, it is steering us in the direction of God. And again, I think that we all know that. We feel that. We experience that in our own lives. But here's the issue. Here's the issue. And I think that we all understand that there is an issue as well. All you've got to do is turn on the news and you see, wow, the world is messed up. There is a lot of messed up stuff going on. If we got this moral compass inside of us all, steering us in a good, positive, right direction, ultimately steering us in the direction of God, what in the world is going on with the world? And the thing is, man, you don't even have to go outside of your house or look at the news. All you got to do is look in the mirror. That's all I got to do. I just look in the mirror and I'm like, David, why in the world have you made some of the decisions that you've made in your life? Knowing at times that you shouldn't have made those. And why do you keep on doing that? Like, has anybody else been there before? Am I the only one that's ever experienced that? I don't think I am. Why do we do that? See, there's something wrong. There is an issue here. And the issue is the fact that even though we have a moral compass inside of us all, steering us in a right, positive, good, godly direction, hear me, so often we don't listen to it. So often we do not. We refuse to listen to it. Check out what the Apostle Paul has to say about this. Another book that he wrote. This is 1 Timothy chapter 1. He says, Having faith and a good conscience, some have rejected, they have rejected these and have shipwrecked their faith. Guys, I don't, know, I don't need to simplify that anymore. Paul just simplified that and he hit, it, hit the, the nail on the head as much as you possibly can, man. He's saying literally, when you reject your conscience, when you know inside there's something inside screaming to you, telling you, do not do this, and you do something anyway, you keep on doing it anyways, or saying, you need to do this, and you don't, you keep on doing whatever you want to do, you keep on rejecting it and ignoring it. What he's saying is for those of us that are followers of Christ, for those of us that would call ourselves Christians, you're on a path where you're going to completely destroy, shipwreck your faith along with your life with it. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, this still applies to you because what he's saying is you still have that moral compass. We all do. We're all created in the image of God, regardless if you follow Jesus or not. And so if you continue, just like someone that is a follower of Jesus, if you continue rejecting that, ignoring it over and over and over again, what he's saying is you will shipwreck, you will destroy your life. You'll destroy your life. And check out something else that Paul says. He says it's the same book, 1 Timothy, just a different chapter. Chapter 4. Now the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some, some will depart from the faith, paying attention, paying attention to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons through the hypocrisy of liars whose, catch this, consciences 
are seared, whose consciences are seared. In other words, what Paul is saying is essentially this. There is a tension that has been placed on your conscience. There is a tension that has been placed on every single one of our consciences. And the reason that that tension exists is because you are able to allow your moral compass, the moral compass inside of us all, your conscience, to be persuaded by other people. Let me say that again. There is a tension on your conscience. And the reason that tension exists is because you are able to allow your moral compass, your conscience, to be persuaded by other people. That means that it can be persuaded away from good, right, godly decisions away from God, ultimately himself. And what Paul says is when that happens, your conscience, your moral compass inside of us all has become, in Paul's words, seared. It's become seared. So what does that word mean, seared? That means calloused. That means hardened. It's become calloused and hardened in your life. And listen, the the more that you reject it, Paul's words, the more that you reject your conscience, the more that you refuse to listen to it, knowing that this is what you need to do, your conscience is telling you this is what you need to do, but you keep on rejecting it and turning it a different way. No, I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to go over here. The more that you do that, it's not that it just becomes seared. Hear, Hear me. The more seared that it becomes. And the more distant that you become from, that you go from God in the process, it gets more and more seared. You get more and more hardened, more and more calloused in your life. And it can be overall, like your life overall. I think we've probably met some people, maybe you were even one of those people who were so calloused in almost every aspect of your life or someone you knew that was so calloused, it seemed like they were just a walking callous like you know a person that's a walking callous they were so hardened by life in different situations so distant from God that you could just sense that but usually it's not your whole life usually what it is it's certain aspects of your life especially if you're a follower of Jesus here usually it's certain aspects of your life that have become calloused hardened more and more and more they become seared different aspects of your life and listen I'm, I'm not telling you anything that you don't know you guys already know all this. And I'll prove it to you. Let's kind of flesh this out. Let's think of somebody, just to pick something out, think of somebody that, that has struggled with addiction. And if you struggle with addiction, if you're here today, you struggle with an addiction, listen to me. I love you. I'm not picking on you. I've actually struggled with that in my past. I'd love to talk with you. I, I'm, just, I'm just mentioning something, okay? Just, just go with me here. Somebody that struggles, deep, deep-seated addiction in their life, all right? That person, think about it, they weren't, born with that addiction they weren't born with that there might be some things in their life maybe they're a little bit more predisposed to it they kind of lean or have a bent to it more than others maybe they grew up in an environment where their you know parents struggled with that addiction alcoholic selling drugs whatever right or maybe they're genetically kind of a little bit more predisposed right to it but 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 that person had to make the conscience conscious willing decision several conscious willing decisions in their life before they got to the point where they were drowning in this addiction. Think about it. First, they had to make the conscious willing decision to look at it. What's that? 
Then they had to make the conscious willing decision to get a little closer. Let me really look into this. Then they had to make the conscious willing decision to take it. Then they had to make the conscious willing decision to ingest it, if it's alcohol, if it's drugs. Then they had to make the conscious willing decision to repeat A, B, C, D, and E all over again and over again and over again and over again and over again until one day they are drowning in the middle of this addiction wondering how in the world did I get here? Because it got easier and easier and easier in their life. And then everything else too, so many different things around it, like for example, lying in order to feed the addiction, got easier and easier. Maybe even stealing got easier and easier and easier. You're doing things in your life that you never thought you would do before. Why is that? It's because your conscience has become seared. It's become hardened and calloused. And listen to me, we all understand this. We've all been there. Maybe... Maybe that's an extreme example and that's not you, but listen to me, what about the lies that you told? What about those lies that you told that you, know, you think nobody knew about? You told them months ago or, or years ago and what you thought was like one little white lie and you kind of felt bad about it, but it's like, oh, it's just one lie and then, and then before you know it, weeks, months go by, years go by and that, that one little lie has turned into an avalanche. You're saying this lie, that lie to cover up this lie over there and that lie over there and that lie over there. You barely even know what the truth is anymore. And we started off with what you thought was so small, now it's become so easy, you are so turned around, you barely even know which way is up anymore. There's so many different examples. I mean, you know, somebody that maybe goes uh, into work, they punch a time card. They're a couple of minutes late. They don't want anybody to know. They're like, man, I need this job. I can't lose this job. I don't want them to be mad at me, and so I feel bad about this. But you know what? I'm going to adjust the time clock, and I'm going to make it look like I got here on time, but I was really a couple minutes late. And you do it once you feel bad about it, but then all of a sudden you fast forward a few weeks, a few months later, and you're doing it over and over and over again. And what you want to feel bad about has now become the norm. You don't even think about it anymore. Why? Because your conscience has become seared. That voice inside of you that was once screaming at you, this is wrong, this is right, don't do it, you need to do this, has become more and more and more faint until you barely even hear it anymore. That's what happens. As listen to me, we all have a moral compass in our lives. Every single one of us steering us in a good, right, godly direction, ultimately towards God himself. Every one of us do. But the problem is, so often, more often than not, we do not listen to it. And the reason that we don't listen to it is because we care less about what's right and more about what we want. We care less about what we should do and more about what we want to do. And so back to this story with David. He's in this cave. And remember a little bit of the context here. David's running for his life. He's been running for his life for a long time. He had to leave everything that he loved, everything that he knew. He had worked his way up to be a commander in the army, so he had the security, the financial security even that came along with it. He had a place at the king's table. He was loved and respected by so many people in almost everybody in the whole nation, right, other than Saul and a few other people. He had a best friend, Jonathan. He was a newlywed. He had his bride. He had everything going for him. From the world's perspective, he was on top of the world. And now everything has been stripped from him. Everything's been taken from him. And he had to run for his life, even leading his, his new bride so that she didn't have to run for her life as well. And so he goes to this cave. He's all alone. Finally, some people come and they connect with him. But still, he's still everything that he's loved, everything that he's known, he's had to, be a, has to abandon it. And Saul will stop at nothing to kill him. He's having to go from cave to cave to cave. And he will not stop hunting him down. 
in this scene right here, 3,000 people, 3,000 troops just to kill David. That was the only mission. There was no other mission attached to this. Kill David. 3,000 men saw, we're going to kill David. That's it. Won't stop. And so here David is. He's in this cave. And there's several caves around. It's not just one cave. And all of a sudden, David and his men, they're sitting in this cave, and they see somebody come in. And they kind of go back to the cave, you know, kind of in the back a little bit, but still a stone's throw away. They see the dude, and all of a sudden, they see, wow, that's Saul. And they're probably whispering to themselves, like, that's Saul. That is Saul. David, you need to go, you need to go kill him. You need to take your revenge. You need to get back what is rightfully yours. David, he's on the throne that technically belongs to you. God wants you on that throne. Go take what belongs to you, man. And then, I mean, anyways, it's, it's either him or you. He's got 3,000 men out there. He's going to kill you. Go get your revenge. Take what is rightfully yours. So think about the thoughts that would have been going through his head in this moment. And something else we need to understand is the fact that Saul went into that cave. And what did he go in that cave to do? We're adults here. Went to go to relieve himself. That literally means relieve himself. If you still don't understand, ask your neighbor. He went to relieve himself. To go to the bathroom. And so what that means is that nobody was with him. Nobody was with him. And if you've been in the military before, you understand this. There were, there were very, very, very strict laws about certain things, uh, like rules, that it's like, you do not, you better not do this. And one of those is, you better not, you best not relieve yourself in the camp. If you do, you're going to get a boot upside the head. You don't do that. And I ain't talking like you go a couple of feet outside of the camp. You go way outside of the camp. You, stay, you take that stuff way outside of the camp. And so what that means, you set up camp. So you think that it's a pretty safe area. Your scouts have scouted it out. You think it's a pretty safe area. You've got a camp. So Saul goes. He thinks everything's fine. Everything's good and dandy. I'm going to go way over here. And then notice he goes in the camp. I'm sorry, he goes in the cave. So what does that mean? He goes in the cave. Not only is he far away thinking everything is fine, everything is dandy, but when he goes into the cave, his men are outside of the cave. What does that mean? They can't do. They can't see him can't see him he's all alone and then what else is he doing he's relieving himself what does that mean Saul is literally in about the most vulnerable position a person could ever be in it's like literally he has just danced right into David's hands and he can do whatever he, he can just squash him if he wants to do whatever he wants and so think about it He's in this cave. All this stuff has happened to him. Everyone around him is telling him, essentially screaming to him very softly, David, get your revenge. That's all. This has to be from God. This has to be from God. Why else would he be in our cave? Get your revenge. Take what's yours. It's either him or you, man. He's going to kill you if you don't kill him. Take him down. And even his own emotions welling up inside of him. And so David is faced with a dilemma. David is faced with a dilemma. Either he is going to take his revenge. He's going to take this opportunity, take his revenge, take what rightfully belongs to him, which does rightfully belong to him. Do that. Or, or he could listen to the voice of reason inside of him. He could listen to the moral compass, the conscience that God gave him. And so which decision would he make? Which direction would David go in this situation? So we're going to get to what David did, but first I want to ask you, knowing the context of the situation, if you were in David's shoes, 
what would you have done? What would you have done? And why would you have done it? Think about that. Let's find out what David did. Same text, 1 Samuel 24, verse 6. This is David. He said to his men, I swear before the Lord, I would never do such a thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed. I will never lift my hand against him since he is the Lord's anointed. With these words, catch this, David persuaded his men and he did not let them rise up against Saul. It's not just the fact that he didn't rise up against Saul. He did not let anyone else rise up, have the opportunity to take down Saul. So here's David's chance. After everything he's been through, and this hasn't just been a few days or a few weeks, this has been a while. David was on the run for his life, different areas for years. This has been a while, away from his bride, away from everything he knows and loves. Here's his chance to take his revenge, to get what's rightfully his, to take the throne that ultimately he should be sitting on. And what does he do with his chance? He refuses to take it. He doesn't take it. And so the question becomes why and how? How did he do this? And why is it that David's moral compass was steering him in the completely opposite direction as everyone else around him? Literally everyone telling him, David, take your chance. This is your chance, man. Trying to convince him, persuade him. David, this is what you need to do. They were so confident. This is what you need to do. And even David's own internal emotions like welling up inside of him and the anger and the resentment and the memories and, and what's going on. And like, yes, this is what I need to do. But through all of it, why was David's moral compass, why was his conscience in the completely opposite direction, 180 degrees, as literally, essentially, the rest of the world. And why was he so confident in exactly what he needed to do? He was so confident. And here's another question. How was he able not only to discern exactly what he needed to do, and be so confident in it, even though everyone else is telling him to do the opposite thing, he was so confident, this is what I need to do. But how did he follow through with it? Catch this. How did he follow through with it? Knowing that it would cost him. Knowing that he would have to suffer because of it. Because that meant that he would have to stay in his cave rather than going to the palace. How did he do that? And why? I'll tell you how. It's because David knew that his conscience his moral compass ultimately belonged to God. He knew that it belonged to God. And because he knew that his conscience belonged to God, and because he loved God, listen, he was willing to surrender over his moral compass to the care of God and allow him to navigate the direction of his life. See, because that's why we read so many different places, so many different passages where David spends so much time in prayer and in the Word, in God's Word, which is what we call the Bible today. We read that so many different places. Here's why. It's because David honestly wanted to know God. He wanted to know God, and he wanted to know God's will for his life, 
not his own, what's God's will for my life. And we get such an incredible behind-the-scenes glimpse at David's life in God's Word, what we call the Bible today. And one of the, one of the books in the Bible called Psalms, which David wrote tons of, actually while he was in the caves. And so the very first chapter in that book of Psalms, he actually gives us this behind-the-scenes look in his daily life in the Word, in what we would call today the Bible, when he talks about meditating on it day and night. Meditating on it day and night, which, by the way, doesn't literally just mean day and night. It means literally from the time he woke up until the time he went to sleep and in between all the way through intermittently throughout the day, meditating on it, soaking it in all throughout the day. That's what he would do. That's what he encourages us to do as well, to soak in, to meditate on, to chew on, to think about, to pray through the word of God every day until it penetrates your heart until it drives your thoughts, your desires, and your actions. Just like it did for David. Just like it did for David. That's how he was able to make this decision. That's how he knew so confidently exactly what he needed to do. See, ultimately, David had traded religion for a relationship with God. Let me say that again. David had traded religion for a relationship with God. And catch this, because he knew God, that meant that he also knew what God wanted him to do. Because he knew God, that meant that he also knew what God wanted him to do. And that sounds so simple, doesn't it? It's like, dude, that's that's way too simple. It can't be that simple. Because we... We are so bad at making this so complicated and so complex when it comes to honestly knowing God and knowing his will for our life and having a relationship with God. But the truth is it literally is that simple because David knew God, because he had an intimate relationship with God. He knew God and he knew what God wanted him to do. Why? Because he spent time with him every single day. Every single day. And when it comes to honestly knowing God and his will for your life, listen to me, you already know exactly how to do it. You already know exactly how to know God and his will for your life. You say, how is that? Well, let me ask you a question. How do you grow in a relationship and really get to know them? How do you do that? How do you grow in a relationship with your spouse and get to know them? How do you grow in a relationship with your kids and get to know them? How do you grow in a relationship with your coworker or with your friend or with anybody and get to know them? You spend time with them. You spend time with them. And so let me ask you a question. I want you to answer this. I want you to answer this. How do you grow in a relationship with God? What do you do? All right, I'm going to ask that again. How do you grow in a relationship with God? That's a little better. All right. Spend time with them. We have made this so complex, so hard, but it literally is that simple. How do we spend time with him? We just talked about it. Two of the most profound ways. Spending time with him in prayer. Diving into his word, what we call the Bible, on a consistent daily basis. Those aren't the only ways, but listen to me, those are a couple of the most profound ways to honestly know God and to know his will 
for your life, just like David did. And listen to me, when you know him, when you honestly know Jesus and you know his will for your life, it will literally change your entire life. It will make every single part of your life better, every single part, just like it did for David. Because David, not in this situation, but you fast forward a few years from then, God raised up David to be the greatest king that the nation of Israel ever had other than King Jesus himself. So I want to end with a question, and we're done here. I want to end with a question, and I want you to ask yourself this. Who is in control of your moral compass? Who is in control of your moral compass? Another way of asking this is, who is navigating the direction of your life? Ask yourself that and be honest with yourself. Has your life, your conscience become so seared because of the distance that you've created between yourself and God? Or do you honestly want to know God and His will for your life? As the worship team comes up, I want you to ask yourself that. Who is in control of my moral compass? Who is navigating, who is steering the direction of my life? So for you, Christian, Christ follower, what are the areas in your life that have become seared? What are the areas in your life that have become calloused and hardened? Areas in your life that you've put in putting up these walls, these blocks from God? Listen to me, whatever those things are, you have the opportunity right now, today, to surrender those things over to Him. To allow Him to navigate the direction of your life. And not just in some areas of your life, I'm talking about in every single area, every single aspect of your life. And listen to me, when you do, He will transform every single aspect of your life. You want to know why you haven't received some of the transformation in your life that you've, you've wondered, why, why do I still, not just a temptation, but I don't see any progress. The amount of transformation that you see in your life in so many ways is determined by the amount that you surrender those areas of your life over to the care of God. So if you want to see transformation in your life, surrender those areas of your life over to Him. Those areas that have become hardened and calloused and seared in your life and you've become distant from God in. If you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, you're not a Christian, then, then I want to ask you in love, man, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Listen to me, Jesus has already done the hard work in your place. It's not about what you can do, it's what he's already done for you. And all he asks you to do is to literally just reach out and grab the free gift of grace, the free gift of salvation that he died to give you. And when you do, listen to me, he will completely transform and change your life. Not just some areas of your life, and every single aspect of your life. He will give you salvation for your soul, but he'll also he'll make you a better person, a better man, a better woman. He'll make you a better spouse, a better parent, a better co-worker. Every single aspect of your life will be transformed by Jesus Christ. So as we stand today, I want to encourage you guys to go ahead and stand. I want you to ask yourself that question. Be honest with yourself. Ask God. And whatever it is that he's putting on your heart, I want to encourage you to surrender those things over to him and respond. 
as we sing, whatever it is, you respond. The altar's open. I'm here. I'd love to talk with you. I'd love to answer if you've got questions, whatever. If you are responding to Jesus, if you're ready to, to, to respond to Jesus for salvation, please do not leave here today without telling me or someone, please. Whatever that is, you respond. Guys, first off, I just want to say thank you for joining us today for the sermon. And uh, whether you're somebody that's come to our church or you're somebody that lives locally, you go to another church, maybe you don't even live here. Um, I just want I just want to say first and foremost, thank you for joining us. And uh, I, I want to encourage you to, to respond in some way today because, you know, when we hear a sermon, when we read the Bible, when we, um, whatever it may, may be, the point of that is, um, for God to speak to us in some way, shape, or form. And so if you are a Christian, um, you've been a seasoned Christian, you know the Lord already, then the way that we can respond is just by you know, asking Him, God, what do you want me to do with the convictions that you're giving me uh, based on this sermon, the way that you're speaking to me? What do you want me to do? And then respond to that. Maybe it's an area of your life that you've been holding on to um, and, and you haven't been giving it to Him. And I want to encourage you to give that to Him and step out in faith. Or maybe if it's, um, you know, some unbelief that you've had and, and God has really convicted you of some things. Um, you know, whatever it may be for you, it's different for everyone. I want to encourage you to respond to God and, and step in His direction. And, and the other thing too is if, if you are somebody that maybe you've listened to this and you've never responded to that gospel message, you've never been, been impacted by that gospel message, but now something is happening, God is kind of stirring in your heart and in your mind a little bit, then I want to encourage you to step out in faith, respond to that gospel message. And throughout the book of Acts, um, Acts tells us our history as a church. Uh, it shows us that you know, what that response looks like. So number one is to repent. And this word repent, all that means is just to turn from, you know, our sinful ways, our sinful desires, you know, turn from making ourselves God and all these other things in life, God, and turn to God and just give Him our life. Um, and, and then on top of that response, after the repentance, there comes something else. It's called baptism. And, and baptism is so key. It's so important. It's seen all throughout um, that book and Acts and, and the importance and significance of it. Um, it's this symbol of death to the old self and, and then um, birth to uh, this new life in Christ. And we're, 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 uh, we die with Christ to the old self and we are raised with Christ to, to walk in this new life. And it's a command from Jesus. So I want to encourage you, if you have made that commitment to Christ, if you have stepped out um, and you are wanting to follow Christ, then I want to encourage you to take that next step and be baptized somewhere. Whether it's if you have a local church that you want to go be baptized at, I encourage you to do that. Um, if you don't have a church, we would love to be able to celebrate that with you um, here. But I encourage you first and foremost to do that, to, to talk with someone, um, to get counsel on what this means, to seek discipleship as well. So. Um, I encourage you to do those things. We would love to talk with you. We are praying for you. I want you to know that you are loved and you are prayed for. So if you're ready to take that next step in your relationship with Christ, um, and if you want to take that next step with us, then we, are, we, we would welcome you with open arms. And so there's some links that we're going to provide below for you. Uh, please check that out. Um, and again, if you, if you have any prayer requests, um, please contact us. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to talk with you. And we're excited about taking this next step with you.